Again, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good afternoon. It's good to see you all again. For those of you who may be, who may be new, as Andrew mentioned, a warm welcome to you. Uh, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, we're really glad that you're with us. My name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are finishing our sermon series uh, today. This will be the final section in the fall series we work through called The Image of God Becoming Fully Human. And it's been really encouraging for me over the past few weeks where I've talked with some of you. And it seems like this has been more than just a, a cognitive exercise where we learn some stuff, but it sounds like it's been transformative uh, for you guys. I know it has been for me in terms of how we understand ourselves and how we really learn to love other people, especially those who are difficult to love because uh, they are made in God's image. And so I've just been really heartened to see that. And so today's our, our final night on that. And then as Andrew mentioned, next week we'll be starting our Advent series looking at Matthew's birth narrative. So looking forward to jumping into that as well. But For tonight, uh, how we're closing this series is we're saying that to be human means you are limited. Okay, to be human means you are limited. And just over the past couple weeks, I've met with a few different people who just told me something to this effect, unprompted. And it goes something like this. They're saying, yeah, you know, so I wake up on Monday morning with these high aspirations, so I create my, you know, 10-item to-do list for Monday. And then I get to the end of Monday, and I realize, like, I've only crossed off one item on that to-do list. I'm like, ah, crap, I'm worthless. All right, no problem. I can finish the list tomorrow. Well, you get to Tuesday, you still don't finish it all. And then you get to the end of the week, and you realize, wow, this was a to-do list for the whole week, you know, not just Monday. But then even then, you have that, those one or two items that still aren't crossed off, you know, that email that you need to send that you just are convinced it will disappear if you ignore it for long enough, right? Or that house project that you need to do. And these things just continue to haunt you and you feel guilty over the fact that you don't get all of these things done. Well, there's an author named Jocelyn Gly and she coined the term productivity shame, where you have these high aspirations for what you need to do and you feel guilt for not accomplishing these things. And theologically, God gives us an answer to this dilemma. I hope some of you are at least resonating with this, because when I heard these people tell me this, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only one. I thought I was the only crazy one. But God has a theological answer for this, and it's the fact that you are a creature, right? Not the creator, which means you are limited. And I wonder if we've allowed the, you know, modern values of the Industrial Revolution which prioritize efficiency, right, and productivity, if we've allowed these values to shape our attitude towards ourselves and our relationship with others in the world more than what God has been telling us all along, right, when it comes to what does he actually expect of us when it comes to our output and the things that we do. And so what we're going to see this evening is just, it's a very simple main idea that we see throughout scripture, but will be in Genesis 1 as, as usual for the most part. And just the main idea is that you are limited, and this is good news. Okay, so you are limited, and this is good news. Consequently, that's the outline for the sermon. Point one, you're limited. Point two, this is good news. Okay, so first number one, you are 
limited. Again, we see verse 27 in chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So for most of this series, we've been looking at the fact that you and those around you are made in the image of God, right? So we've zeroed in on the dignity that every single human being has because we're made in the image of God. However, we're not God, right? We're made in the image of God, okay? So when God made Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, they had real authority, right? They were to take care of the earth. They were to create culture, name animals, and and so forth. However, they were also limited, limited in power, limited in perspective, right? Limited in ability. And therefore, so you and me are limited as well. And note that these limits that he placed on Adam and Eve were pre-fall, okay? So meaning limits aren't a result of sin. They're good, right? They're a purposeful and positive feature of our humanity that God imbued us with. And yet, I don't think we believe this, the fact that it's a good thing that we're limited. So just think if this next week someone made a comment to you to the effect of, you know, as I'm beginning to know you, you just, you seem like a really limited person, right? You seem like a really dependent person. How would you respond to that? I think maybe you would go into coping mode with ice cream and a Julia Roberts film, right? Tried and true combination right there, right? Because we don't believe that limits are a good thing. Uh, There was an article in The Atlantic that I read this week called Why Women Still Can't Have It All. And it's a female author. She's a very accomplished woman in her career, and she's also a mom. And it's a long article, and it it prompted a bunch of responses to this article. But essentially what she's doing is she's wrestling with the societal expectations that many women feel. Okay, so you need to have a stellar career and have a great marriage and be an awesome mom who's present with your children, you know, through all of their hard times. You need to have a home that looks Instagrammable, right? You need to be clever at parties. You need to maintain a social life. And so many women are just besieged with this idea where if I don't have it all, then I must not be, it must just be a matter of I'm not committed enough, right? I'm not competent enough. And they're regularly besieged with this. And, you know, men, we go through similar things as well. It just takes a a different wrapping, as it were. And she's right. I think especially in the West, this is a pressure we feel to do it all and have it all. But yet what we see here in creation is us being limited is a good thing. So God instills limits throughout all of creation. We see it in the creation account. And this creates the condition for growth. Okay, so animals, they have a limited habitat that if they go out of, right, they die. Planets have a limited orbit that they're to run in. So if Neptune one day is like, hey, you know, today I feel like sliding over here into Earth's orbit. Okay, that's not going to go well for anyone, including Neptune. Okay, limits are good. They create the conditions for freedom. Our worship team, I love our worship team. They were just up here before I came up, right? So imagine if one of the worship team members during worship is like, you know, these limits of time signature and key, right, are so oppressive, you know. Like, who cares what Johnny said? You know, I want to express my freedom. I'm going to play in whatever key and time signature I want, right? It'd be a disaster because limits, the limits, right, of key and time signature bring us into the expansiveness of song. 
And so, so it is for us. When we live within the limits that God's given us, this creates the condition for our growth and for our joy. And so just consider if sometimes when you you get frustrated about something and you think something to the effect of, you know, if only I had more time, if only I had more ability, right? If only I could do more or accomplish more, whether it's, you know, in a relationship, maybe it's in your job, then, then I would be happy and others would be happy with me. But you see that underneath that frustration is lurking the conviction that only if I were the infinite creator, then life would be better. Right? And that's, in fact, the first sin. Okay, the, the first sin was humanity trying to throw off limits and take prerogatives that only belong to God. Okay, but it's actually when we live within our limits that we grow. And so as we head into this next point, right, being limited is good news. I think just is, is a word of comfort here, especially for those of you who are very driven, very type A, and, you know, in your relationship with God, in your relationship with other people, is just take comfort knowing that God never expects you to relate to him or to other people as anything more than a limited human being. Okay, he doesn't ask you to do it all and to have it all. And this is good news. Okay, so point one, just the fact that we are limited. This was a really hard sermon to prepare for because I've realized just, it's one of these things that's just convicting me every time I, I study. I'm, I'm really bad at this, so I'm walking through this with you guys. So point one, you're limited, but point two, it's good news. Okay, so maybe you're thinking, okay, I can see with these examples of animals, planets, music, limits are good, but what does that actually look like for me on the ground in real time, right, to live within my limits and why is that good? And so we'll, we'll look at a few. So first, number one, it's good news that you're limited because it frees you from outcomes. Okay, or maybe better put, it frees you from the burden of outcomes. Okay, it frees you from outcomes. So take a high-stress situation, a, a high-stakes presentation that you need to give at work, a hard relationship that you need to have with a friend or family member, okay? Any kind of situation that creates a lot of stress. In any of these stressful situations, you have three variables at play. You have your responsibility, right? What you need to do and what your attitude needs to be. Number two, you have the response of others. And then number three, you have God's presence and providence. God's providence is his oversight and presence over everything that happens, Okay, so these three things are always going on at play during any, any situation, right? But let's look at stressful situations. And often what happens is our lane is number one, right? As limited beings, our responsibility to have a certain attitude and to take a certain action step. But what we do is we drift into lanes two and three and try to manage and control the response of others and what God's going to do about the situation. So we see this in how the best athletes perform. Okay, so look, you look at the best athletes, and let's just look at first athletes in general. So if you take an athlete, they're in, the, they're in the middle of a game, and they're thinking, I need to play so well that the fans love me, like the city streets rejoice over me anytime I walk down the sidewalk. I get MVP for the year. You know, I get a better offer next year. If they play with that in mind, it, they're going to be a nervous wreck because they can't control, they can't control how good their opponent's going to be. They can't control the response of the fans. No, what the best athletes do is they focus on number one. Okay, so what's my responsibility? I need to, I'm responsible for practicing hard, 
for studying the competition. And then during the game, I need to hope that my body responds in those split seconds in the way that I've trained it to do, right? Those are how the, the best athletes play. And so it is for us. So take it, now let's bring it down to a more personal example. A, a friendship, a marriage, a, or a presentation you have to give at work. When you become dependent on number two and three to go a certain way, you become a mess, right? So take a, a marriage or a friendship, right? Your responsibility there is to love them and to serve them as Christ first served you. But when you slip into number two, okay, I need you to praise me. I need you to honor me. I need you to agree with me. Okay, this often is underneath so many of the marital and friendship conflicts, right? When you turn a desire for your spouse or friend to act in a certain way, and then they don't because you've turned a desire into a need, and now you get angry, now you get bitter, or a presentation at work, right? I need to be praised. I need to get a raise. I, I need this to secure myself in this company or in my career, okay? Instead of depending on God's power and presence to help you do number one, and to be with you, come what may, with respect to number two. I hope this is freeing for you. I mean, this has been one of the most freeing things for me, especially in what I'm doing right now, preaching. Preaching used to be largely miserable because I would slide into, like, taking ownership for number two and three. Well, I, you know, the congregation needs to grow in this way. Unbelievers need to come to saving faith. And you know, just all these amazing things need to happen. So, of course, it's going to make me overburdened. Right now, what am I responsible for? To pray over the passage, to pray over myself and, and anyone who's going to be here on a Sunday, right? And then to apply the passage to the best of my ability to the real people in our church, and then pray for God to move in our midst. And we see an example of this in Scripture, right? Being freed from the burden of outcome in Second uh, Timothy chapter two, verse ten, where Paul writes, "I endure everything for the sake of the elect." that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And you see what he's saying? I endure everything for the sake of the elect. So is he his church planting? I'm going to study the Bible. I'm going to preach with all my might. I'm going to commit to my relationships. I'm going to train up elders. I'm going to train up women and men in ministry. But what? For the sake of the elect, meaning I can't control who's, who, God, who God's going to save. Hey, I can't control who's going to criticize me, who's going to make fun of me, who's going to physically beat me, which happened to Paul. But he was able to endure in ministry because he focused on, number one, right, what he was responsible for in the power of God and then letting God, God's presence and providence, be with him no matter what happened. And so just consider how many times in your life, be it within relationship, relationships at work, whatever, you may feel anxious, angry, guilty for owning something that God isn't actually asking you to own. Okay, so there's incredible freedom when it comes to just freeing ourselves from the burden of certain outcomes that we hope for when we remember that we are not God and we are limited. Okay, that's number one. So the limits are good news because it frees you from outcome. Number two, limits are good because it paves the way, it paves the way for love. And here I'm, here I'm drawing from, there's an author named Kelly Kapik who wrote a, a great book called You're Only Human. And so I'm drawing some of these thoughts from, from his writings. And in there he points out how we often forget 
the intense emphasis we in the West place on the clock and productivity and efficiency. And there's an author named Nawaka Egbalum. He's, he's an African. He lives in D.C. And he writes just as he observes, you know, Western culture. And he points out that us Westerners just don't often realize that the way we do things and just think need to be the way things should go isn't how much of the world does things, right? So what he says is, so many Africans, for example, they take more of a relationship and event bit, an event-based approach to things, whereas Westerners were very clock and efficiency-based. So in Africa, when, you know, if people are dancing, they're just going to keep dancing until it's no longer fun. A, a wedding will start when it starts, and it will end when it ends. <laughs> I've actually, I've officiated uh, a few weddings where you have two different cultures colliding, and it's kind of entertaining to see. <laughs> you like, Westerners just get really upset when the other people aren't on time, right? Because it's just a, a different approach to, to how we do things. And I heard a professor share how he took a number of Americans to Africa, and they were watching a number of the locals do this task. And so they're completing this task. It doesn't matter what it is. And they take a long time to do it as a group. And then after they observe this take place, the professor, he looks at his Western American students. He says, you know, just what'd you make of all that? And immediately they jump to, well, you know, it took way longer than it should have. It would have been way more efficient if they broke it up into these parts and did it this way and that way. And what the professor pointed out to them is he said, you see what, like, you just, you're, you're actually, this isn't just an observation. You're actually casting a moral judgment right, on how they went about this. And it's not that other cultures don't value efficiency. It's just not as high of a value as relationships. And so for us, I just, I want us to consider how much of our focus on productivity and efficiency hinders our ability to love. Okay, so, you know, have you ever hung out with someone and it's like they're always looking at the clock. You can tell they just can't wait to get to the next thing. As soon as the clock strikes 12, they're out. You know, that, that has an effect on you with how important you are to them. And rooting ourselves in this creation account, God could have created the world with the snap of his fingers, but he didn't. Okay, he created it in six days or six ages, depending on how you read Genesis 1. God could have sent Jesus into the world immediately in Genesis chapter 4, but he didn't. And this tells us something profound. This tells us that for God, his highest value isn't efficiency. It's love. Okay, and love has a speed. Love often feels inefficient because relationships are inefficient. And I was thinking about this in my own life and just in terms of how I measure what makes a, a good day and how I engage with other people. And so every night during dinner, Titus will ask me, I'll go, hey, Daddy, how was your day? And usually what I jump to is if, if I did 10 out of 10 of my to-dos, it was a good day. If I did one out of my 10 to-dos, it was a horrible day. Titus, it was a bad day. But it's okay. Jesus is good. He's alive. <laughs> but as I was studying this this week, it just made me reassess, you know, what if I stopped measuring how good a day is based on what my output is, compared to, did I create space to love? My family, you guys, to be present with God. And so for you, as you look at your life and you evaluate, you know, what makes a good week, what makes a bad week, just 
where in there is creating the space to love, which often looks and feels really efficient, really often looks and feels very inefficient, excuse me. And I think the less we expect ourselves to be unlimited and have these high expectations for productivity, for efficiency, spend less time on screens, right? Which screens are really the the temptation to be omnipresent and omniscient like God is. That will free up space for us to be present with other people. And to adopt the unhurried, often very inefficient-looking pace that Jesus modeled in his ministry. And I think as we do that to create space for love, our, our personal lives and our church will begin to feel a lot less like a frenzied factory and look and feel a lot more like heaven. Okay, so that's number two. When we live within our limits. Okay, this, this paves the way for love as we stop focusing on efficiency and productivity as our highest value. Number three, why are limits good news? And it's because they increase our intimacy with God. They increase our intimacy with God. And we see this in a number of places, but one place that's particularly clear is in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the Apostle Paul is writing about an extremely painful affliction he has. And it's been plaguing him, and actually, me and a number of our church members went to a seminar this past weekend, and the speaker there mentioned that this, a lot of scholars think this affliction was probably something going on with Paul's eyesight that was both painful and it made it difficult for him to see. And Paul writes about this, and he pleads with God for God to take it away from him in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 and 9, and he writes this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I pleaded with God to take this pain away from me. It would even make my ministry more effective for crying out loud. Wouldn't God want that? But God allowed this affliction to remain in my life so that I would remember that I'm a limited being and that I would press into deeper intimacy with the one who loved me and gave himself for me. And what Paul learned is that God does not become priceless to you until he has to become priceless to you, which often happens through pain. Right When you butt up against the limitations of your humanity and you have no one else to hope in. And so for you, maybe you're in a really hard situation right now. Maybe, maybe it's a mental or physical illness that you're wondering, if, is it ever going to go away? It's a relationship that's just been so hard, a relationship that fell apart. Maybe it's a job situation that you really want to to go a certain way. Maybe you feel like you are holding the pieces of your faith and you're wondering if they're ever going to be put back together again. And what Paul's writing here is it would be far worse for you to figure this out on your own and forget God than to realize you have no other recourse than to throw yourself into the arms of your Savior, your King, your friend, who's with you and who 
also knows what it's like to be limited. And he promises to be with you even when all other lights go out. You know that Jesus, he knows what it's like to be limited. In, in God, you have this, a God who knows what it's like to be limited. He knows what it's like to be let down by someone he committed his life to for three years. Judas, Peter. He knows what it's like to be in pain and all alone. The entire night he was mocked and beaten by the mob. He knows what it's like to cry out to God and be met with deafening silence and wonder, does he even care at the cross? And he went, this, he went through this willingly for you and then rose again from the dead to pave the way for love, okay, to make you a child of the Most High. And then so you know you always have his empowering presence with you, come what may. And so the more you depend upon him when you have to depend upon him, Often these, these pains are severe mercies God places in our lives. We learn to actually experience God in the way he's designed us to do. So our limits, they, they are good news. It frees you from the burden of outcomes. It paves the way for love. Most importantly of all, it increases our intimacy with God. Okay, we have to be careful of things like a learning limits as some kind of self-actualization project. It's actually meant to, they're meant to be the guardrails that lead us to God and dependence on him. And so I hope you don't think that your limits are a sin. Okay, often we confuse finitude with sin, that you don't think God is upset with you or disappointed with you because you're somehow not obeying him or accomplishing things, right, in a way that you've conjured up in your mind that you need to be, that you need to do or be. But he's made you limited so that you learn to love being his child who actually depends on him. And Ashley Hales, she's an author who wrote a book called A Spacious Life that was helpful for me in in life and uh, preparing for this, and she puts it this way. In talking about our limitations as human beings and being children, our deepest identity is we are dear little children. Living as a child is an invitation, not a shame. A get-to instead of something to resent or feel embarrassed by. We get to be limited. I have a photo of one of my children. On a day of pure sunshine, he is running down the hillside, leading with his chest, his smile and stride wide as as his speed picks up. Running is pure delight. Again and again, he ran down that hill, feeling the sun kiss his head in early summer, sensing the pleasure of limbs moving at full force. His mama couldn't help but smile too. Here was joy with flesh on. This is what the invitation, the get-to of being a child with the attention of her father, feels like. We have a father who welcomes us into a present, unhurried life. We have a father who knows what is best for us, who cares and shepherds us to embrace our limits so we can know his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are not God, uh, although we so often want to be. Um, I pray that you will help us to, in whatever area it is that we're struggling to apply this, to not just understand that we're limited, uh, not grow cynical or passive because we're limited, 
but to, to press into you, to see our limits as freedom, and most of all, to see them as an opportunity to love other people as we put down the values of efficiency and productivity and to increase our dependence on an intimacy with you. Uh, thank you for the assurance you give us that you never condemn us in our limits because of your son, Jesus, and your forever, never-stopping love for us. And it's in the name of your son we pray. Amen.